We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And away we go. Episode 91 of the Al Galdi podcast, the Ryan Kerrigan episode. I hate to dedicate an episode to a guy who now is on the Philadelphia Eagles, but Kerrigan clearly is the best number 91 in Washington history. Although, you know who else wore number 91? Greg Minuski. Do you want me to dedicate this episode to Greg Minuski? I didn't think so. Anyway, it is Thursday, June 24th, 2021, the day after another cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs game for the Nationals. What is with the Nats lately? A bunch of crazy games, but also a bunch of wins. A 13-12 win at the Philadelphia Phillies on Wednesday afternoon to complete a two-game sweep. As nutso as the Nats' 3-2 win at the Phillies on Tuesday night was, this win on Wednesday afternoon, even nuttier. A full breakdown coming up next segment. Special guest on the show, Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. He just wrote an article that has received a lot of attention. The article about former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan, who died on May 11th at the age of just 37. There's a lot to what happened with Colt Brennan. I'm not trying to make everybody sad or anything like that, but Colt became a very popular figure here among Washington fans, even though he never played in a single regular season game in his NFL career. His popularity was all about what he did in college at Hawaii and what he did with Washington in the 2008 and 2009 preseasons. Colt Brennan was a classic August hero for Washington. People really took to him. I used to do a radio show with Chris Cooley. Cooley loved Colt. We had Colt on the show one day for like an hour or two. So I'll talk Colt Brennan with Jeff Miller. In addition to discussing the team that Jeff covers, the Los Angeles Chargers, who yes, will be at FedEx Field for week one of the 2021 NFL season. We had Darius Geis news on Wednesday. Darius Geis, remember him? Uh, All five charges against him now have been dropped. Will he ever play in the NFL again? He won't be playing for Washington again. Of that, you can be sure. I'll talk about what has gone on with guys in just a bit. And I will have a few words on the Orioles, who on Wednesday night continued to be slaughtered by Dusty Baker's Houston Astros at Oriole Park at Camden Yards. A 13-0 loss 
The Astros did what the O's are doing, a total teardown rebuild, a complete purification of the organization, a massive tank job, tankus maximus, whatever you want to call it. What the O's just witnessed, the American League leading Astros steamrolling the O's, is exactly why the O's are doing what they are doing. Just remember my saying for the O's, pain now, pleasure later, pain now pleasure later. If you're an O's fan, just keep saying that to yourself over and over and over and over again, because at this point, you really don't have much of a choice here. The Orioles are brutal. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. Email from Gerald in Spain, writes Gerald. Two things. First, what's the plan? The century mark, the buck, the big one, zero, zero. Uh, ah, yes, Gerald. Episode 100. That is coming up. Uh, I'm not sure what the plan is. This is episode 91. So we have nine episodes until episode 100. The thing is, when you do a new installment of the pod for each weekday, as I do, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m. each weekday, never forget that, uh, the episodes pile up quickly. I just started this podcast in late February. Here we are in late June, and I'm already approaching episode 100. So I don't know if I want to go too nuts with episode 100, but yes, perhaps something special will be done. We'll see. Uh, If you have any ideas, let me know. Continues, Gerald. Second, listening to pods, pundits, and Twitter, the complaint that Washington is too hard to use in a sentence, but they like Washington FC, so WFT is somehow worse than WFC. As my British mates would say, what the bloody hell? Why can't a sports writer just say the WFT takes over possession on the Cowboys 20? Well, uh, I can't speak for sports writers, but as you likely know, I am not a fan of Washington FC, so I am not among those sports people who would say WFC is better than WFT. I think they both stink as long-term names. I'm fine with WFT in the short term. The three names that I like the best in terms of permanent names, in no particular order, are Washington Warhawks, Washington Red Wolves, or Washington Wolves, if you prefer that, and Washington Warriors. But that's just me. Uh, I've been getting a lot of Nationals emails lately. Email from Mike Holmes. My man Max walked off the field like a moose with purpose, LOL. Love the intensity. Love the competitiveness. I love every second of Max. Max attracts People may not be the biggest MLB or Nats fans, but what he brings not only in majestic pitching, but entertainment with the stare down, the mouthing off to himself before pitches, yelling after pitches, etc. People want to see him pitch. It's just another reason trading him would hurt. I believe we would lose fans, not just as a viewer from home, but attendees at games. He is who you want as your star on a team. Loved every minute of back. Speaking, of course, of what went down in that 3-2 win at the Phillies on Tuesday night. You're not wrong, Mike. I don't disagree with you on any of that. I just would say, if the Nationals have a bad record come mid-July, if this Nationals team very much comes off like a team that isn't going to be doing anything of consequence in the 2021 season, Max is heading into free agency. The Nationals farm system is in need of a lot of help. I think you 100% have got to be on board with trading away Max Scherzer. Nobody wants to have to do that. But if it comes to that, I think the Nationals should pull the trigger on that. Right now, it doesn't look like it's going to be coming to that. Not at all. It looks like Max may well be a part of a Nationals team that's going to be a contender 
as the season goes on. We shall see. But I love Max too. How do you not love Max Scherzer? He is the guy who will be the first guy to go into Cooperstown, to go into the National Baseball Hall of Fame with the Nationals hat on. Email from Jerry Moore. Crazy game, Al. 13-12 and 11-9. I thought it was over. Nice surprise in the ninth. Tide seems to have turned for the Nats. Next 20 will give us some answers. Yes, they will, Jerry. The schedule after this upcoming four-game series at the Miami Marlins until the All-Star break, and actually through the first series after the All-Star break, is brutal. But if the Nats keep playing as they are playing right now, it don't matter who they play. It was a two-game series that felt like a 20-game series. A two-game series that featured two games that were marathons, were dramatic, were tension-filled. But the two games, ultimately, were Nationals wins. A two-game sweep at the Philadelphia Phillies. 3-2 win on Tuesday night. 13-12 win on Wednesday afternoon. Pretty, these games were not exemplary examples of Major League Baseball's desired pace of play. These games were not, but these games were Nats wins. And so Davey Martinez, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, sir, Davey. The boys now have won 10 of 12. The boys now are 35 and 36. The boys now are alone in second in the National League East, four games behind the division-leading New York Mets, who beat the Atlanta Braves 7-3 on Wednesday night. Nats are a game ahead of both the Phillies and the Braves. So this win on Wednesday afternoon was incredible. 13-12 the final at the Phillies on what was, understand this, the 10-year anniversary of Jim Riggleman's stunning resignation as Nats manager. How about that as a commemoration? for what old Riggs did 10 years ago, right? Resigning after a Nationals walk-off win over the Seattle Mariners, resigning and then ultimately showing up at Caddy's in Bethesda. I mean, the whole thing was unforgettable, right? 10 years to the day of that, we got what we got on Wednesday, this 13-12 win at the Phillies. The game lasted for four hours, 19 minutes. The game featured the two teams combining for 25 runs, 27 hits, and 14 walks. The two teams combined to use 14 pitchers. The game was the first in major league history in which each team hit a grand slam and a three-run homer. The Nats scored 11 runs over the fifth and sixth innings, and the Nats overcame deficits of 5-0 in the fifth inning, 9-5 in the sixth inning, and 12-11 in the ninth inning. And the Nats did all of this despite Juan Soto going 0 for 4 with a walk. The Nats were awesome offensively, and yet Soto did next to nothing. He had a two-out, seven-pitch walk, and the Nats six-run six, despite having been down to the count at one point, one-two. Okay, but that was it from Soto, and yet still, the Nats did as they did offensively. Oh, by the way, you also had in this game what happened with Jordy Mercer, Mercer entered the game as a pinch hitter. He had a pinch leadoff single in the top of the eighth, despite having been down to the count of 1.12. He then, in the bottom of the ninth, while playing second base, committed a two-out fielding error as he failed in an attempt at a backhanded stab of a JT Real Muto grounder. The ball came up and caught Mercer on the face, causing him to spit up blood. So you had Jordy Mercer spitting up blood. He didn't know what was going to happen. The Nats had no bench players left other than catcher Jan Gomes. 
Mercer told Davey Martinez, I'll stay in the game and swallow my own blood. And that's what Mercer did. And he ended up making the final out of the game, catching a Brad Miller liner. But here was what Davey said during his postgame press conference about Mercer, again, spitting up blood in the bottom of the ninth of his wacko win at the Phillies. Yeah, I mean, we, we, had, no, we had no more players. The only player we had left was Gomes. And, uh, you know, I didn't want to take him out of the game. And then all of a sudden he gets hit. And he's swallowing blood out there. I mean, he busted his lip up pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I, I just told him, I said, hey, the only thing we do is put Jan Gomes at, at third base. What do you think? And he goes, I'm swallowing my blood. <laughs> I'm swallowing my blood. That's a line for the rest of the national season. That's a hashtag for the rest of the national season. So many heroes for the Nats in this win at the Phillies on Wednesday afternoon. Josh Bell, though, stands out maybe more than anybody. Josh Bell, starting first baseman and number four batter, he went two for four with a grand slam, a key single, and a walk. And of course, it was the granny that stood out the most. Bell smashing a two-out full count grand slam to left center field in the Nats' six-run sixth inning, despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. So Bell who sneakily has actually done quite well this season in two strike counts, was down 0-2, worked the count full, and then belted a two-out grand slam to left center. The home run per Statcast going a projected 401 feet. Look, Bell has not been very good this season. He's been better lately, but it's all relative. It's not like he's killed it here lately. His overall numbers for the season remain really bad. To see him do as he did on Wednesday. Really was nice. This is a guy who, by all accounts, is a good guy. None of this is like, oh, Josh Bell is a jerk or anything like that. It's just that he has not produced offensively this season, even though defensively, he's actually been surprisingly decent. Josh Bell is a part of the Nationals overall, having been excellent defensively this season. And take a listen to this. Davey Martinez, during his postgame press conference, what he had to say about Bell's homer. And you're going to hear Davey Get emotional. You know, big home run by by Jay Bell. I mean, that was that was huge. I mean, um, two strikes. You know, being able to stay on the ball, hit the other way. Uh, you know, that was that was, that was big. You know, that, I mean, that, I mean, to me, that that, that was that was the, that was the, the moment right there where I, I I told myself, you know, that that made him a national right there. I mean, that really did make him a national. So um, hopefully, he keeps it going now. Sounds a bit is it a bit a bit emotional thinking about that for him. Sounds like you really. You happy yeah, for him? I mean, you watch this guy every day at work, the way he works and how passionate he is about our club and the team. I mean, he, he was, I mean, it was awesome to see him come through like that. It was. Nice follow-up question there by Nats insider Jesse Doherty of the Washington Post. And it wasn't just the grand slam that Josh Bell delivered. Bell also had a huge single in the game, a leadoff single in the Nats two-run ninth inning to go with a two-out full count walk in the bottom of the fifth. Now, with that Nationals two-run ninth inning, Alex Avila, he was an at starting catcher at number six batter. He went 0 for 3 with a walk and two strikeouts. He had a seven-pitch walk in the Nats' five-run fifth, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. But also for Avila in this win on Wednesday afternoon was a perfectly executed sacrifice bunt in that Nationals two-run ninth inning. Now, no fan am I in general of the sacrifice bunt. The sacrifice bunt almost always lowers your run expectancy in an inning. This never gets talked about enough, 
But the idea of, well, if you bunt the runner or runners over, that makes you more likely to score runs. No, it actually doesn't because you're giving away and out. However, there are some circumstances in which sacrifice bunting makes sense. Later innings of close games, when you need a run, you have someone coming up who isn't a great hitter. You have someone coming up perhaps after that batter who himself isn't a great hitter. Sacrifice bunting in those circumstances makes sense. And so Davey going with the sack bunt in that spot, I actually think was excusable. And how about the job that Avila did in executing that sacrifice bunt? A perfectly executed sacrifice bunt, a textbook sacrifice bunt by Avila in that two-run ninth inning. The bunt advancing runners on first and second to second and third, respectively, setting up Starlin Castro's one-out, go-ahead, two-run single. Yes, I said Starlin Castro. He was in that starting third baseman and number seven batter. He went three for four with a double, two singles, a walk, and three RBI. Castro had an RBI double in the Nats' five-run fifth, a one-out seven-pitch walk in the Nats' six-run sixth, a one-out single on a one-two pitch in the top of the seventh, and a huge one-out, two-run, go-ahead single in the Nats' two-run ninth inning. Big hits for Castro in this game on Wednesday. He's not been very good this season, offensively speaking, but I want to give him credit because he delivered on Wednesday afternoon. Kyle Schwarber delivered again in this game. Starting left fielder, number one batter, one for four, but the one was a big one. A three-run homer, also had a walk in the game, did strike out three times. But yes, Kyle Schwarber homered again on Wednesday afternoon. One out, three run, opposite field homer to left field that tied the game at five in the Nats' five-run fifth inning. Another oppo bapo for Schwerber. He's been doing this a lot lately. It felt like early in the season, all of his homers were to right field. Lately, a lot of opposite field homers to left field, left center field. Schwerber also had a two-out six-pitch walk that loaded the bases in the national six-run sixth inning. But for Schwerber now, 10 home runs over his last 12 games. I mean, just think about that for a moment. 10 home runs over his last 12 games, during which he has raised his slugging percentage for the season by 115 points. That is absurd. His slugging percentage for the season has gone from 404 to 519. He's gone from having an underwhelming season to now having an all-star caliber season in the period of less than two weeks. It is remarkable what Kyle Schwarber is doing here. I mean, just keep saying that to yourself. 10 home runs in 12 games. Who does that? And yet Kyle Schwarber has done that. Trey Turner had a big game on Wednesday, starting shortstop and number two batter, three for four, had a double, two singles, and a walk. So Trey reaching base four times in this game. He had a one-out double in the top of the fourth, a one-out single in the bottom of the fifth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12, a two-out, two-run single in that six-run sixth inning, and a one-out seven-pitch walk in the top of the eighth, despite having been down in the count at 1.02. Even Victor Robles and Josh Harrison got in on the act on Wednesday. Robles, starting center fielder, number eight batter, one for four, had an RBI single and a walk, ribby single in the Nats five-run fifth, one-out five-pitch walk in the Nats six-run sixth. And Harrison, starting second baseman at number five batter, one for four with a single and a walk. He had a leadoff five-pitch walk in that Nats five-run fifth inning and a first-pitch single in the Nats 
two-run ninth inning. So pretty much everyone getting in on the act. I mean, I mentioned Soto. He didn't have a hit. He did have a walk in the game. The Nationals were prodigious offensively in this 13-12 win at the Phillies on Wednesday afternoon. Now, there were the 13 runs scored by the Nats. There also were the 12 runs given up by the Nats, and that was the negative in the game. The Nationals pitching, which has been excellent lately, was not good on Wednesday. And it starts with Eric Fetty, who had been rolling, and all of a sudden, the uh, carriage turned back into a pumpkin for Fetty, at least on Wednesday. We'll see what happens with him moving forward. And I actually think that's the takeaway for Fetty in terms of his outing in this game. The outing wasn't good, but now the tell will be, okay, was this Fetty just going right back to the pitcher he had been up until recently, and we're never going to see Fetty surge truly again? Or was this a mere speed bump, a mere hiccup? a mere flesh wound from which Eric Fetty responds nicely. We'll see. But he does need to respond because he was not good on Wednesday afternoon. Five runs in four innings. He gave up six hits, which were two homers, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks. He had just one strikeout on 74 pitches, 45 strikes versus 29 balls. You know, one of the great things about Fetty during his recent run had been that he had become more of a strikeout pitcher Again, he was right back to the guy we had known Fetty to be coming into the season with this outing on Wednesday afternoon. Just one strikeout over four innings. Fetty allowed three runs in the bottom of the second on a leadoff five-pitch walk of Brad Miller, a single by Alec Bohm, and a three-run homer by Travis Jankowski on a bomb to right field on an 0-2 pitch. The home run per stat cast going a projected 406 feet, but Fetty had Jankowski down 0-2 and yet still gave up that three-run homer. This was not the Fetty we had grown accustomed to seeing, right? Fetty came into the game having tossed 20 consecutive scoreless innings and yet got got as he did in the bottom of the second, giving up the three runs, and that wasn't all. Fetty allowed a run in the bottom of the third on another homer, a one-out solo homer by, yes, the ex-Nat Bryce Harper to left center field, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. The uh, homer per stat cast going a projected 389 feet. And Fetty gave up a run in the bottom of the fourth on a leadoff double by Travis Jankowski and a one-out first pitch RBI single by the Phillies starting pitcher, Vince Velasquez. So Fetty had Jankowski down 0-2, gave up a three-run homer. Had Harper down 1-2, gave up a solo homer, and Fetty gave up a ribby single to the Philly starting pitcher. Not a good outing for Eric Fetty. Now, he had been so good lately. I mentioned the 20 consecutive scoreless innings coming into the game. He also had posted a 2.54 ERA over nine starts since getting rocked in his first start of this season. Six runs, five earned, and one and two-thirds innings in the Nats. 7-6, seven, seven inning loss to the Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park in game one of a doubleheader all the way back on April 7th. So the outing for Fetty on Wednesday afternoon, just his second clunker of the season. Again, the key here is how does Fetty respond in his next start? The other problem with the pitching for the Nationals on Wednesday afternoon was the bullpen. The bullpen was not good. And to be honest with you, I almost give the bullpen a pass for this because the Nationals bullpen has been leaned on so much this season. This was bound to happen. The bullpen had been great lately. You're not going to get this every game, especially in a game like this one in which you used seven relievers. When you have to do that, use seven relief pitchers in a game, they're not all going to have it in that game. And that certainly was the case for the Nationals on Wednesday afternoon. The seven relievers ended up combining to allow seven runs in five innings. Davey Martinez ended up using Kyle McGowan, Wander Suero, Sam Clay, Justin Miller, Austin Voth, Tanner Rainey, 
And then my guy, Paolo Espino. More on him in just a bit. But the problem started with McGowan, who was a complete disaster in a four-run Phillies fifth, during which he gave up four runs and recorded just two outs. And what was particularly painful is that McGowan retired each of the first two batters he faced, including striking out Brad Miller on three pitches for the second out, and then came disaster. Two-out single by Alec Bohm, despite him having been down to the count at 1.12. Two-out single by Travis Jankowski, followed by a stolen base by Jankowski, who, by the way, was all over the place in this game. Two-out five-pitch walk of Ronald Torres. Two-out pinch hit grand slam by Andrew McCutcheon to left field on a homer that went just to projected 378 feet for StatCast. And McGowan then issued a two-out hit-by-pitch of Odubel Herrera before getting pulled in favor of Wander Suero, who finally got the third out on just two pitches. And that was it for Suero. He retired the only batter he faced. Sam Clay gave up a run in one and two-thirds innings. He tossed a perfect bottom of the sixth, but then allowed a run in the bottom of the seventh on a leadoff double by Alec Bohm on a one-two pitch, a one-out single by Ronald Torres, and a one-out pinch RBI single by Luke Williams. Justin Miller retired the only batter he faced for the final out in the bottom of the seventh. Austin Voth, though, was charged with two runs in the bottom of the eighth, during which the Nats went from leading 11-10 to trailing 12-11. Voth faced three batters in the bottom of the eighth. He gave up a leadoff five-pitch walk to Bryce Harper, followed by a single by JT Riomuto. Did, though, then strike out Brad Miller on six pitches. The two runs were scored off Tanner Rainey, who, before recording the final two outs, allowed each of the first three batters he faced to reach base. Rainey gave up a one-out game-tying RBI single to Alec Bohm on an 0-2 pitch, a one-out four-pitch walk to Travis Jankowski, there's that name again, and a one-out RBI single to Ronald Torres. And then, mercifully, we got someone who came in and slammed the door shut. Paolo Espino tossed a scoreless bottom of the ninth for his first career save. The Paolo Espino story continues. I've had a lot of fun with Paolo Espino, both on this podcast and on the Nats Chat podcast that I do with Mark Zuckerman. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with who Paolo Espino is. First of all, the name is perfect. Paolo Espino, he's a journeyman. He was taken by the Cleveland Indians in the 10th round of the 2006 MLB draft. But the point is, he's actually been really good for the Nationals this season. His ERA now on the year is down to 220. You see, Paolo Espino is someone who's in his mid-30s. He's bounced all around Major League Baseball. He really has nothing to lose. And so if you're Paolo Espino and you've been at the Major League level for a good chunk of the season due to the Nationals' overall lack of pitching depth, why the heck not, man? Why not just go out there, throw strikes, and see what happens? This is not someone who throws, you know, 98. This is not someone who was in his early or mid-20s. This is someone who, again, is just kind of happy to be here. So why not just go out and do what you do? You know, throw strikes, work quickly, and just see what happens. And Paolo Espino, with that approach, has ended up being so effective and so good for the Nationals so far this year. He just recently got the first regular season Major League win in his career. Now he has registered the first regular season Major League save in his career. Again, this guy was taken by the Indians in the 10th round of the 2006 MLB draft. And Davey, after the game, referring to Paolo as our secret weapon. I love it. Here was Davey on Espino. You know, and at the end of the day, you know, Espino, who 
basically pretty much our, our secret weapon. I mean, he comes in and, you know, the one guy that I know, you know, it's going to go out there and pump strikes and, and, uh, and he did that today, you know, and he got his first save in the major leagues, which is awesome. I mean, you know, but he's a guy that, you know, I've always said, you know, when you need somebody to throw strikes, um, he's a guy, he's going to, he's going to pound the strike zone. And like I said, he's a smart, smart pitcher. Um, he did that tonight. There it is. Our secret weapon, Davey Martinez talking Paolo Espino. The bullpen overall was not good for the Nationals in the 13-12 win at the Phillies on Wednesday afternoon, but Espino was good again for the Nats this season. Next up for the Nats, a four-game series at the Miami Marlins, who are last in the National League East, even though they have the second-best run differential in the NL East. The Marlins are 31-42, and even though their run differential is plus 15. Marlins on Wednesday night losing to the Toronto Blue Jays 3-1 to complete a two-game sweep. Game one, Thursday night at 7-10, Joe Ross is an ad starting pitcher. Game two, Friday night, 7-10, John Lester is an ad starter. Game three, Saturday afternoon, 4-10, Patrick Corbin is the national starting pitcher. And then game four, Sunday afternoon at 1.10, a Thursday as Max Scherzer will take the mound for the Nats. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Before we get to our special guest, Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times on his terrific piece on former Washington quarterback called Brennan. Did you see what happened on Wednesday with another former Washington player? Former Washington running back Darius Geis on Wednesday had four misdemeanor charges against him dropped as a settlement was reached with his ex-girlfriend. Details of the settlement were not disclosed, but this does now mean that all five charges from that which led to Washington releasing Geis last August have been dropped. Now, don't hold your breath on Washington resigning Geis, but that is notable. So the Washington football team on August 7, 2020, released Geis hours after his arrest on domestic violence charges. The news of Washington releasing Geis came minutes after the news broke that Geis had been arrested on five domestic violence-related charges, one felony and four misdemeanors. He had one count of strangulation, which was the felony, three counts of assault and battery, and one count of destruction of property. The arrest, as you may recall, was not based on one alleged incident. The arrest was based on three alleged incidents, those taking place on February 14th, 2020, Valentine's Day, uh, March 13th, 2020, and April 17th, 2020, 
All at Geis' Ashburn residence, the incidents were reported to the Montgomery County Police Department. The alleged victim lived in Montgomery County. But the felony count of strangulation against Geis was dropped this past January, and now the four misdemeanor charges against Geis have been dropped. Now, before you say that this was an innocent man charged of things that he never did, understand the following. That may be true, but that's not necessarily true. According to Virginia law, some charges can be dropped if the alleged victim states in writing that the alleged victim is satisfied with the injury compensation. A release by the Virginia's attorney's office said that this, quote, process permits the parties to control the direction and outcome of such matters, end quote. The attorneys for Geis and the woman released a joint statement. That statement read in part, quote, they both have worked very hard toward a resolution of their relationship. They both wish that the other, now and in the future, does well and that both can move on from this difficult process, end quote. So yes, maybe Geis is innocent of what he had been accused of doing, or maybe Geis and his ex-girlfriend reached a settlement and she decided that pursuing the charges further wasn't worth it. Whatever the case, the Washington football team will not be re-signing Darius Geis. Understand that Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers removed Geis from their draft board prior to the 2018 NFL draft over concerns about his knees and his character. That's been reported by ESPN Washington football team insider John Kime. So Don Ron, when he was a head coach of the Panthers, didn't even have Geis on the Panthers draft board. And no, Don Ron did not run Panthers football operations the way Don Ron runs Washington football operations these days. But clearly, Ron had some say-so in what the Panthers did. And Darius Geis wasn't even on the Panthers draft board for that 2018 NFL draft, in which, of course, Washington took Geis in the second round. Ron was not a fan of Darius Geis. That's a big part of why Washington, as you may recall, long before Geis was arrested on the five domestic violence-related charges, signed multiple running backs in free agency in the 2020 offseason. And J.D. McKissick and Peyton Barber, in addition to drafting Antonio Gibson in the third round of the 2020 NFL draft, Ron, even before the arrest of Geis, was not counting on Geis. But I still think it is very much an uphill climb for Geis to be signed by any NFL team. Like, forget about Washington for a moment. Don't forget what else has been going on with Geis over the last few months. More stuff regarding Geis' time at LSU. An article by USA Today investigative reporter Kenny Jacoby was published this past March 26th. The article had the following headline, Grandmother Harassed by Then-LSU Player Darius Geis Claims Ed Orgeron Lied to Investigators. The article included the following, quote, 74-year-old Gloria Scott remembers vividly the day in December 2017 that Darius Geis, LSU's then standout running back and his friends, approached her while she was sitting. She glanced up and they stopped right in front of her. I like to F women like you, you older women, because y'all know y'all like us young men to F y'all, Scott said, Geis told her, and you know you want this body. Scott was shocked, she said. Geis kept making vulgar comments while rubbing his body up and down from his chest to his genitals. She said she asked Geis to move away and leave her alone, but he refused. He had a big grin on his face, she said, and his friends were on his sides laughing. This went on for a few minutes, Scott said. She felt degraded. She complained to LSU Athletic Department administrators, the school student accountability director, and directly to Geis' head coach, Ed Orgeron. Nothing happened, she said. End quote. Now, 
That's an allegation from Gloria Scott. It, though, per USA Today, is at least the fourth sexual misconduct complaint that the LSU Athletic Department received about guys in less than a two-year span. All four complaints, by the way, per USA Today, went uninvestigated by LSU in violation of federal and LSU policies. Great job, LSU. But USA Today's Kenny Jacoby and Nancy Armour on August 19, 2020, reported that two former LSU students said that Geis raped them just months apart in 2016, though each woman did say that she was highly intoxicated at the time. The report also said that one of the women, a former LSU tennis player, spoke at length with an investigator for the Washington football team on August 6, 2020, one day before Geis's arrest and subsequent release. So there's still a lot of stuff out there on Geis. Again, it's all alleged. It doesn't mean that it's all true. But if you're an NFL team, do you really want to swim in the waters that is Darius Geis? Also, by the way, over the last few months, multiple reports in late April that LSU is in the process of banning Darius Geis from the school's athletic program indefinitely and stripping his name from the program's records, basically trying to erase Darius Geis from the history of LSU football. So Darius Geis remains a name too hot to touch, especially in this current social awareness climate. You never say never, but especially given that his position running back is one at which you can find quality players on the cheap all the time. Why take the public relations hit that would come with signing Geis to say nothing of the injury risk, right? Because at the end of the day, Geis's penchant for being injured may have doomed him anyway, even if none of this legal stuff ever happened. Darius Geis could not stay healthy during his time with Washington. His injury troubles did date back to his time at LSU. Geis suffered a hyperextended left knee in 2017 while at LSU, but then Geis missed all of his 2018 rookie season due to a torn left ACL suffered in Washington's preseason opening loss at the New England Patriots. Geis dealt with a hamstring tweak prior to 2019 Washington training camp. Geis missed eight games in the 2019 season due to a torn right meniscus that was suffered in a loss at the Philadelphia Eagles in week one, spent about two months on the reserve slash injured list. Washington placed Geis back on the reserve slash injured list in December 2019 with a sprained left MCL that was suffered in a loss at the Green Bay Packers in week 14. You had NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on the evening on which Geis was arrested. So August 7th of last year, tweeting that Geis had actually hurt his knee again the day before his arrest and subsequent release from the Washington football team. That kind of gets forgotten that Geis got hurt again, just as uh, all of this stuff went down, him getting arrested and then him being released. Never forget, ultimately, Darius Geis over his two plus years with Washington had as many stints on injured reserve as he had touchdowns in the regular season. Three. That was it. Three stints on IR, three touchdowns in the regular season. I don't pretend to know the truth about what happened between Geis and his ex-girlfriend and what happened between Geis and these women at LSU, but I don't see why any NFL team would sign Geis, at least right now. So if you are on Twitter, you perhaps noticed over the last few days an article that got a lot of attention. The article was about former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan, who tragically died on May 11th at the age of just 37. He had a history of legal and substance abuse issues. He sadly died at a hospital in California just hours after being turned away from a detox program due to it not having any available beds. The author of that article is Jeff Miller, Chargers insider for the Los Angeles Times, and I'm very pleased to welcome Jeff 
to the Al Galdi podcast. Jeff, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? I'm doing great, Al. Thank you. I, I wish we were talking uh, maybe just about football, maybe about the season opener, and that was why we were talking, but uh, obviously uh, obviously not. But yeah, we're, we're doing well out here. Thank you. I appreciate it. So uh, first of all, are you surprised at how much attention your article has received on Twitter? Uh, a little bit. Uh, the one thing I did know uh, going into this was that a lot of people, the, the thing about this story was a lot of people knew the name knew the the legend of you know what what colt did at hawaii so i I figured there'd be a pretty good audience for it even though he didn't play in the nfl obviously had he played in the nfl and gone on and done some things at that level this would have been a whole different thing but i did think that i i did have a sense that a lot of people even you know sort of uh people who maybe aren't major college fans would have known the name and would have remembered the name and been like oh yeah that was a guy who did all that you know 15 years ago like whatever happened to that guy so uh, i'm a little bit surprised but uh i did think there was a chance uh just given the fact that he had some real serious rain, uh, rain, uh, name recognition and the fact that so many people you know back when he was at hawaii would stay up and watch those games i mean that was that was a big deal on saturday nights for, for a lot of people all over the country not just in hawaii yeah, I mean, we've experienced it here in D.C. Washington took Colt in the sixth round of the 2008 NFL draft. He was with Washington for the 2008-2009 seasons, never played in a regular season game in his NFL career, but he became this like preseason legend here in Washington. There was something about him that drew people to him. I got that sense in reading the article as well. Like There was a charisma, that there was something about Colt that made people sort of attach themselves to him. Uh, absolutely there's no question about that and i'm not i'm not surprised that he he had sort of um had that kind of following and and got it very quickly he i I ended up not being able to use it because i just was running out of space there was so much to try to get into the story but his high school coach told me you know he showed up he's sort of this gangly kid and he was the kind of kid he showed up at at campus he goes to a, a a private school in Orange County at Modern Day, which has produced a bunch of great athletes, a bunch of professional athletes, a bunch of very high achieving people. And Colt shows up and he's sort of this goofy kid and he, kids picked on him and they made fun of him. And they, he was the kid that would t- steal his shoes and during gym class and weird stuff like that. And he just kind of rolled with it. And soon enough, you know, over the next year or two, kids started to appreciate the fact that he, he would take that and he kind of gravitated. They sort of gravitated to him. And he said, by the time he was a senior, he, he would walk around campus and kids would just follow him and want to be with him. And he just had that. It was, a, it, I don't know what it is. It was, you know, you said charisma. Maybe that's what it was. It was his smile, but he, he had something that attracted people. And, and, um, he just had that way about him. Uh, and, and he, that goes back to when, like I said, he was in high school that started. So he, it's not surprising that, you know, years later he's in the, he's in the pros, he's in the, trying to make it in the NFL. And he's got that same appeal still. I, I think he always had that. What Colt was at Hawaii really can't be overstated. I mean, first of all, like the exclusivity of Hawaii was playing games when basically nobody else was playing games. He puts up these video game numbers. There was a great quote in your piece of, if you put Tiger Woods, Tom Brady, and Colt Brennan in an autograph session in Hawaii, the lines would be equally as long. He really is revered in Hawaii, isn't he? It, that's the one thing, Al. I was a little surprised, but I didn't. I guess I didn't understand the depth of it out there until I started talking pe- to people out there. And uh, yeah, he he basically he's the biggest 
he's the biggest thing in sports that Hawaii's ever had. And to, for a kid from Orange County, California, to go to Hawaii and have that impact is, is remarkable because that's not a place that's always welcoming for, to people from the mainland. And, and they, um, it can be difficult for people. I know a lot of people who've just moved there to live there and, and they have a hard time. They're not always accepted. So for him to be able to, to do that and to do what he did is pretty remarkable. And, and he was, you said it, it was a video game. And, and June Jones, the head coach at the time told me the whole idea was they wanted to play their games at six thirty, and, which would make them the only game going on in the country. They would, you know, them, whoever they're playing are the only two teams playing at that time. And they, and they did that specifically to try to make themselves more popular and get on ESPN, get on TV. And the fact that that, that came at the time they had a quarterback before Colt named Timmy Chang, who was also ridiculous. And then, then Colt comes along and it just, it was the perfect timing. And everything came together perfectly. And, and June Jones said that Colt made that happen. And it worked out. He, he, it was June Jones' plan, and Colt executed it better than even June Jones could have imagined. And the story you relay in the piece about how June Jones discovered Colt Brennan, it was almost by accident, right? It, it was, yeah. They were looking at a wide receiver um, and a guy named Gerald Rabb, who ended up going to Boise State, actually played – I don't know if he played me. I know he has a shot in the NFL. He might have played maybe a little bit practice squad kind of guy, but they went to look at him and uh, they were uh, one of uh, June Jones assistants. A guy named Rich Miano was looking at tape and, and started to realize, man, this quarterback's pretty good, I think. So he, he takes the tape down to June Jones and he said, June watched one play like 10 straight times and said, this guy is unbelievable. And what June explained it to me was he, he was so precise that every pass he threw was like it, what he said was eight, it was 18 inches in front of the receiver every single time, which is, uh, you know, he, apparently 18 inches is exactly what you're looking for. Cause that, that stuck with June Jones to this day. And he said, this, this guy was as accurate as any quarterback I've ever worked with. And obviously June Jones, everyone knows him, his name and all he did were, you know, in the NFL and in college working with a, a ton of great quarterbacks. So for him to say something like that, it, it really shows how good Colt was. We're talking with Chargers insider Jeff Miller of the Los Angeles Times. He's written a terrific piece on former Washington quarterback Colt Brennan. So addiction obviously is a very tricky thing. Colt, as we know, was never the same after in 2010 being the passenger in a serious car crash that included him suffering a bunch of injuries, including uh, most seriously traumatic brain injury. Did Colt's addiction issues exist prior to that accident, or was that accident what truly started the downfall? Um, as I understand it, it's a little, it's a little bit of a gray area here. As I understand it, he, you know, he was already into. Um, uh, he was certainly drinking, and uh, I know he's smoking marijuana uh, at least by that point, uh, and uh, and so he he was down that path already. There's no question. Uh, but it, it, uh, his parents both said that, yeah, after that accident, what he was doing really, really intensified. And he had a three or four year stretch where he really, uh, got into it heavy and was, you know, he, you know, his parents, he's in Hawaii, his parents are here. They're not a hundred percent sure, but, but they indicated to me that they, they thought, you know, he would go through stretches after that accident where he was really depressed and he would just, 
he wouldn't do much. He would just lay in bed and he, you know, he would, he was abusing alcohol and he was doing whatever else he was doing on top of that. And, um, they're convinced they, they don't know for sure, but they're convinced and people around Colt are all convinced. And Colt himself was convinced that he was never the same after that. And, um, I think that accident and the fact that that was when he woke up from that accident, I, I think he realized there, I have no chance of playing football anymore. And it, it, football was such a big part of his life that I think, you know, between the accident, whatever trauma happened to his head, whatever effect that had, you add on top of that, the fact that now football's gone a short time after that, he broke up with his, his girlfriend, she's gone, all this stuff snowballed. And uh, I don't think there's any question that after that, he he really, that was really the beginning of his his downfall to, to where he ended up uh, dying. He also seems to have suffered a number of concussions. You mentioned in the piece that Colt's brain has been sent to the CTE Center at Boston University. Do the Brennans believe that CTE was a factor, maybe even the factor, in what ultimately happened to Colt Brennan? Yeah, the short answer is that they're, they're not sure. Um, to be honest with you, I think the his mother, Betsy, is seems a little pretty convinced i think his father terry is less convinced that they maybe they had something to do with it uh, i'm not sure why there's a there, there do seem to be a little bit of difference of opinion between them on that um but uh i think it would be naive to based on what we've learned about uh, cte the last you know 15 years or so and what you know some of these other high profile the junior sayo and story out here which really resonates with people still uh it, it would be ridiculous to to just dismiss this and think oh they had nothing to do with it i, I would be frankly i would be quite surprised if there isn't something that the uh comes back from boston university that says yeah he had he had some kind of issues with ct I, I would be surprised myself just based on what i know about the story and what what everybody's told me about cold and his behavior it, it, it certainly sounds um like that's uh, that's probably going to be the case, but but to, yeah, to, to, you know, to, to your question, uh, it, it, they're not one hundred percent sure, and and they're that's one of the things they're very interested in, in finding out eventually. With Colt's parents, Terry Brennan and Betsy Brennan, what was it like talking to them? Uh, I'm sure it's not easy getting parents to talk about the death of their son. What was that process like? Yeah, they they were a little reluctant uh, to do it at first, so I, I had I had talked to him a few times and, and, uh, the idea, my, what I told them was this could help some other people. I mean, if we can get this story out and first off, I know there's a lot of people who want to know what happened. Second off, it could maybe help some people who are going, you know, your family's going through this people going through this. I've heard, I got a direct message from someone today, uh, thanking me for doing it. Who's going through, they said, um, I'm, I'm going through it. Colt went through. And, uh, so thank you for writing that. I needed, I needed that, you know, so that's the kind of, that was sort of the impetus for wanting to do this. Uh, and so his parents came around to that idea. It, it was real interesting. Um, as emotional as this story is and sad as it is, his parents and talking to them about it, there wasn't a ton of emotion from them. And I, I thought that was interesting the whole time I talked to him two different times and there was only one moment where his father teared up and, um, and that was when the, we were watching a video that someone had put together about Cole's life. Uh, but it came, what I realized was they, they, they don't have any regrets. Like they, 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 there, there is no part of them that it feels like they let 
him down. They they know, and they told me. I, I ended up not writing this because it just wasn't the room to get it. But they they both said that we did everything we could do. Like there's nothing else we could have done to try to help him. And uh, June Jones also said the same thing that his, his parents did everything they could have possibly done. There's no way they could have done more. So as emotional as it is, in talking to them, I, I just think they've they've accepted it. They know they did everything they could do. And there's no reason to be really, you know, down on themselves any more than you would be when you lose a child, just just because you know they 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 did what they could do and they tried as much as they could, and uh, so it's interesting in talking to them. It's um, it's almost like they just are. I think they're just defeated and they realize we we did all we could do. There's there's nothing else that we could have done, and and it's just it's really sad and it, it it's it's just. But it, there isn't that um, it, that it, it's tremendous heavy emotion that you might expect there to be. Um, so I think that it probably made it easier for them to kind of just approach this as like, okay, let's tell a cold story and get it out there for other people. Yeah, and maybe that's how they cope with this. I'm not big on like blaming the NFL, blaming the NCAA for things like this cult situation, but I am curious. To what extent do you know, was the NFL, the NFL Players Association, maybe the NCAA in some form involved in trying to help Colt as he dealt with these issues? He's obviously not the only former football player who has to grapple with issues like these. Do you have any idea if those outlets were involved in trying to help Colt Brennan? Yeah, the one thing I can tell you, uh, uh, June Jones shared with me, is that um, he was trying to get Colt in... um, help through the through the players association through the nfl and through their uh you know their concussion program and trying to trying to get cold some help through them the problem that june ran into is they they will, will, won't take people if there's substance abuse problems they've got to kick that habit you've got to get clean you've got to go through detox you've got to kick that habit before you can get into their program and as june explained to me that he just couldn't could he could not get cold to that place where he could he could uh he could get into that he could tap into those services so i do know they had reached out through june jones had reached out to the nfl to try to get him help and it's just the circumstance of you know they have they had their protocols and their guidelines and and colt just couldn't get himself on track to to be able to you know avail himself to those uh what might have possibly could have been some help with colt the quarterback I know it's not like he played that long ago, but the NFL is constantly evolving. It's become, of course, even more of a passing league over just like the last 10 years. There's much more of an open-mindedness now to quarterbacks of all different sizes and skill sets and more of an open-mindedness to offenses that make usage of principles that we see all across college football. Do you think if Colt Brennan came along now, he would have had more of an opportunity to be an NFL quarterback? Or do you think his body was such that he was prone to injury and it just was never going to happen for him at the NFL level, regardless of where offenses are and how open coaches might've been to someone like Colt Brennan. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, he, I think he would have had more of a chance now. Um, you know, that, that whole, you know, there was an era of, you know, the run and shoot, these quarterbacks were putting up crazy stats and then they would go on into the NFL and do nothing. Or they just couldn't, they couldn't play. They were just, you know, products of the system, um, I don't think that was the case with Colton. I think if he came along now, 
he he probably would have had a more of an opportunity and they probably would have gotten more of a look and more people probably would have tried to you know tailor their offenses around him and his skill set which you see now is everyone's doing that now i'm not sure you know 20 years ago 15 years ago if teams were as uh, open to doing that coaches were as open to do that but now you, you're seeing it all the time now so i i think he if, if he were coming out now if he were in someone's camp as a rookie right now i think he'd have he, he'd probably have more of a legit shot to uh, to prove what he could do. Yeah, that's how I think about it as well. So to make a sharp transition here, you do cover the Chargers. The Washington football team will be hosting the Chargers in week one of the upcoming season. Uh, Justin Herbert, obviously outstanding last season as a rookie. I take it there's a lot of optimism with the Chargers in Los Angeles right now. Yeah, it's it's funny. I, I was telling someone the other day the Chargers, uh, Joey Bosa, after their uh, mini camp ended last week, uh, we were we had talked to him and he he talked about like it seems like we really got it going now. We're on the right path, and the Chargers are one of those teams that every year it doesn't isn't that the case, right? They're always the team that's yeah. that got a lot of optimism, <laughs> and I think and they are that team, and and I think I the reason why is go back in their history, they've always had a quarterback. It was, you know, it was Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, and now it's Justin Herbert. So you go back 20 years, they've always had a quarterback. So I think that's the main thing is because if you have a quarterback in the NFL, you got a chance, right? So I think that's why that is. And, but yeah, they're, you know, new coaching staff, uh, Herbert, they've got, a, they've certainly got, uh, plenty of talent. I mean, there's no question these guys have, I mean, they have five or six legit Pro Bowl, you know, annual Pro Bowl guys every year if they're healthy. So they've got the talent, they got a new coach, and then they've got this, uh, you know, quarterback who's who's crazy good last year. So, yeah, there's 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 optimism like there is every year with the Chargers, but it, 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 we'll see once the, the games start. And the main thing for this team is just get to that opener healthy. Of the two NFL teams in L.A., which team is the bigger deal, the Chargers or the Rams? Uh, the Rams are a little bit of a bigger deal. I think there's a misconception. You know, everyone uh, bags on the Chargers for, you know, no fans and L.A. doesn't want them and, and all that. And, and there is some truth to that. But that all it sort of implies that everybody loves the Rams and they're all on board with the Rams, which isn't the case. Like both these teams are still trying to get a firm footing here. Uh, and they're both kind of tenuous, you know. And the, even when the Rams went to the Super Bowl, there was a – there was some excitement, obviously, around that, but it didn't last very long. So, this is a tough market where you've got to win, you got to do it in an entertaining way, and you got to do it year after year to keep the interest and keep people's attention. So, both these teams are—they're kind of in the same spot. They're kind of on that verge of um, of seeing, you know, what they can do, and and obviously, both teams with new quarterbacks and Herbert in his second year, and the Rams with Stafford now. It's they're they're both they're very, it's interesting they're very similar spots but uh, right now the Rams are a little bit ahead but it's it's not any kind of insurmountable lead and, and like I said they're both battling for for attention no question excellent well I appreciate you coming on so much great job on the piece on Cold Brennan and continued success thanks I appreciate it anytime. Someday, maybe, just maybe, the Orioles can be what the Houston Astros are, which is the best team in the American League. And I know, the Astros, a bunch of cheaters, a bunch of taters with what they did to win the 2017 World Series championship. But still, the Astros are a really good team and are proving that with what they've done over these last two seasons now. But what the Orioles are doing, engaging 
in a total teardown rebuild is based on what the Astros did to get good. The O's going all in on analytics is based on what the Astros did. The O's in November 2018 hired two key guys who had been with the Astros, hired Mike Elias as executive vice president and general manager, and hired Sig Dell as assistant general manager in charge of analytics. But the O's quite clearly are not yet where the Astros are. And boy, did we see that over the last three games. A 13-0 loss to the Astros at Oriole Park at Camden Yards on Wednesday night to complete a three-game sweep during which the O's were outscored by the Astros 26-3. Yes, 26-3. As our friend Steve Spurrier would say, not very good. No, no, it's not. The O's, since their 15 and 16 start to the season, are 8 and 35. 8 and 35. 35 losses in 43 games. And the O's now are an American League worst 23 and 51 with an AL worst run differential of minus 105. The Astros, meantime, are dominating. Former Nationals manager Dusty Baker and his team are killing it, are slaying it. The Astros now have won 10 consecutive games, now are an AL best 46 and 28 with a major league best run differential of plus 135. For those of you who hate what the O's are in the midst of, you need look no further than the Astros for why the O's are in the midst of doing what they are doing. And maybe what the O's are doing ultimately does not work out. There are no guarantees. But the purpose of the Orioles' approach, the whole point of tanking and stripping the organization down to its core is to become what the Astros are, a powerhouse. The Orioles' offense in the series was horrendous. The Orioles' pitching in the series wasn't much better. Thomas Esselman got smashed on Wednesday night, six runs in four innings. But the best slash worst part of the game was Mickey Janis who made his major league debut. So the O's on Tuesday selected the contract of reliever Mickey Janis from AAA Norfolk. He is a really cool story. We talked earlier in the show about the Paolo Espino story. Uh, Mickey Janis has some Paolo Espino-like undertones. Janis is in the midst of his age 33 season. He was taken by the Tampa Bay Rays in the 44th round of the 2010 MLB draft. He had never pitched in a major league game until Wednesday night. He is a knuckleballer. The knuckleball has become kind of a lost art. And these days, the only guys throwing knuckleballs are position players when they pitch. Uh, That's basically it right now. Janice made his major league debut in this 13-0 loss to the Astros at Camden Yards on Wednesday night. And look, I can't even say this with a straight face. Uh, He did not exactly kill it in his major league debut. Things did not go so well for old Mickey Janis. The wonderful story of the guy in his 30s finally making his major league debut did not have a happy ending, at least on Wednesday night. Mickey Janis, seven runs in three and a third innings on eight hits, including three homers, two doubles, and three singles. He also issued four walks. He threw just 43 strikes versus 28 balls on 71 pitches. This is always the thing with knuckleballers. When they are on, they actually can be lethal. But when they're off, 
they can get tattooed. And Mickey Janice got tattooed on Wednesday night, never more so than on the Jordan Alvarez home run. I mentioned Janice giving up three homers. No homer was worse in terms of what was done to Janice's psyche, you got to think, than what Alvarez did. Jordan Alvarez led off the top of the seventh inning with a moonshot to right field on an 0-2 pitch. The home run for StatCast went and projected, you ready for this, 448 feet. Okay, you talk about a batting practice shot. That's what that was. Jordan Alvarez smoked a Mickey Janice 0-2 pitch to begin the top of the seventh, 448 feet per stat cast. It was that kind of night for the O's. It was that kind of series for the O's. It's been that kind of season for the O's. It's been that kind of a last few years for the O's. Next up for the O's, a four-game series against the Toronto Blue Jays in Buffalo. Game one Thursday night at 7.07. Dean Kramer gets the start as, oh yeah, the O's are in the midst of their franchise record 19-game road losing streak. All right, my friends, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. On Friday's installment of the podcast, a special guest, Brad Spielberger, salary cap analyst for Pro Football Focus. We will go in-depth on the Washington football team's salary cap situation. What's good? What's concerning? We'll also get into the likelihood of Washington signing Jonathan Allen and, yes, Brandon Sheriff to long-term contracts this offseason. Brandon Sheriff. Yes, that guy. Thank you, Commissioner Goodell. Have a great rest of your Thursday. I'll talk to you on Friday. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.